This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 15, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Ann Gibbons talks about hunting mammoths 45,000 years ago, and David Grimm is back with the latest from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some of the most interesting stories from online this week. First up, we have a story on brave ladybirds. Not all songbirds sing. In fact, 30% of songbird species, only the males sing, and the females keep it quiet. In new research out this week, it seems that this silence might be an important defense against predators. What other reasons might songbirds have for their silence, like sadness, Dave? Well, protection, trying to keep their location, specifically the location of their nest, hidden. That's a pretty strong motive. And this study focused on fairy wrens, adorable little Australian songbirds. (laughs) What kind of singing do they do? Well, they do something that's called a chatter song. And this is something that both males and females do. And you can actually hear the females singing it right here. And one of the interesting features of the song is the females sings it in response to her mate singing it. And basically, the female's in her nest. Her mate is flying back, perhaps from foraging. He sings a bit of the song. She sings a bit of the song. And what that does, researchers think, is it sort of strengthens the bond between the pair. These are birds that are monogamous, so it's important for them to have this sort of strong relationship. And how did researchers go in there and use these relationships and these songs to test this evolutionary theory? Well, they kept an eye on the females, on the nest, on the eggs in the nest, and what was happening to them. And what they found was that when the females sang a lot, when they were inside the nest, the nest was more likely to be preyed upon by birds, cats, and foxes. They also set up a different kind of experiment where they weren't just observing, but they were actually baiting the nests. Right. They set up some kind of artificial nests and they played through speakers, the female birds doing this chatter song. And they found that when they played the song a lot, these nests were much more likely to be preyed upon. This does add weight to the idea that selection is working to suppress female song rather than make 
male song more ornate, but could both things be happening? Yeah, well, what's really interesting is in the past, when researchers have thought about bird song, they've really just focused on the males. Well, male birds are singing because it's some sort of sexual display, and they've got to sing these really good songs, because otherwise the females are not going to mate with them. And there is really little focus on the female song. But now it seems that maybe the evolutionary attention hasn't really been on making males sing more. It's been on making females sing less. But it's possible that actually both things are happening. Next up, we have a story on building a brighter bulb. These days, incandescent bulbs get a lot of flack. They waste electricity, they get hot. Compact fluorescents and LEDs are the new standard. Of course, these alternatives are often considered too cold or sterile, hence special coatings to give off that warm, glowy light (laughs) indicative of an incandescent. People care about light bulbs a lot. It's practically ideological. So what's at stake here, Dave? Well, what's at stake is can we get that warm glow back in our living room But the problem is these lights, as you alluded to, Sarah, just aren't that efficient. When we compare them to something like compact fluorescent bulbs, which typically are between 7 and 13 percent efficient, or LEDs, which are between 5 and 15 percent efficient, these incandescent bulbs are only about 2 percent efficient. And these efficiency differences actually can be a huge energy problem because lighting consumes 11 percent of all the electricity in the United States. So the more efficient the light, the less energy we're using, and the better for the environment. And you said 2 percent efficient. That means about of all the energy going into the bulb, only 2 percent of it is emitted as light. Right. The rest of it is emitted in wavelengths that either we can't see or it's wasted as heat. And that's where this group at MIT come in and they say, Let's build a better bulb. Let's harness some of that heat energy. Right. And so what they came up with is something called a photonic crystal, which is this really intricately structured material. And the point of the crystals is it sort of acts as a filter and a mirror. It allows some wavelengths of light to pass through while reflecting others. And importantly, it's really allowing that visible wavelength to pass through. So we're getting more of that visible light that we can see and blocking a lot of the other wavelengths or reducing a lot of those other problems, wasted things like heat and the wavelengths that we can't see. So when these bulbs were created, they are able to let visible light out and they reflect the infrared back in. How much efficiency do they gain? Well, the researchers actually got it up to 6.6% efficiency, which is still kind of low, but it's triple that of these conventional incandescent light bulbs that we think about. Now, it's not quite up to the LED or even the compact fluorescent standard, but the researchers think that with this technology, it can be really improved a lot, and potentially one day we may actually be able to reach about 40% efficiency, which would be a lot better than LEDs and compact fluorescents. Are these light bulbs going to be available anytime soon, and are they going to be super expensive? Well, one of the big problems with these photonic crystals is they're actually pretty expensive. So researchers have two challenges. A, can we make these things more efficient? B, can we make them cheaper? Last up, we have a story on influencing emotions through the ears. This latest study is predicated on a pretty cool piece of software. It can take your voice and change its emotional content. Here are a few examples. I believe they're reading a Haruki Murakami short story, which is a very good choice. First, here's a normal voice. I'm on my way to the meeting. The airplane is almost full. I would like a new alarm clock. Here's how it sounds when it's been processed to sound afraid. I'm on my way to the meeting. The airplane is almost full. I would like a new alarm clock. And last, here's how it sounds when it's happy or happified. I'm on my way to the meeting. The airplane is almost full. I would like a new alarm clock. 
What's neat about this is that you can't tell the voices have been manipulated as a listener. But the speakers themselves didn't notice either, right? That's right. When the researchers tried this with more than 100 participants, only about 16% of them actually noticed that their voices were being manipulated. The rest didn't. And even more significantly, they had an emotional reaction to their emotionally manipulated voices. Which is a very strange idea. So what do you mean by an emotional reaction? If they heard their voice being manipulated to sound happier, they would feel happier. And the same thing with feeling afraid or feeling sad. What are some of the ways that this audio trickery could be used? Can I use it for when I record the podcast intro and I'm feeling down? <laughs> You're never feeling down, yeah. Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's one potential application is to improve mood. The researchers even suggest that maybe it could be a treatment for depression. And then maybe some more commercial avenues, such as maybe improving the tenor of online meetings or even gaming or perhaps not that we need any more digital manipulation of singing performances, <laughs> but this could be yet another way to change how singing a popular song comes across. Okay, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about trying to create safer batteries that don't explode or at least catch fire. Also a story about how the lack of fiber in your diet could affect your children and your children's children. Finally, for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how strictly should dangerous virus studies be regulated. Also, a story about why Singapore is spending billions of dollars on its scientists. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and our policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Above the Arctic Circle, in central Siberia, 70 degrees north of the equator, a young student happens upon a frozen, half-buried, woolly mammoth. The carcass sticks out of the side of an eroding bluff at Yenisei Bay. Radiocarbon dating reveals it's approximately 45,000 years old, and it's got evidence all over it, evidence it had been hunted, slices and jabs from ancient human tools, I spoke with science news correspondent Anne Gibbons about the mammoth, its marks, and what it all means for human migration. So it's in the far, far north of central Siberia on the eastern shore of Yenisei Bay, which is the largest river system flowing into the Arctic. This is really far north. It's 72 degrees north. And in this place, a 12-year-old boy found the mammoth's leg bones eroding out of a coastal bluff. He was there on vacation in August 2012 because his parents were working at a local weather station, and he found this bone. So when the mammoth was alive 45,000 years ago, the peninsula was an open tundra steppe with grasses and willows and river valleys with forest tundra. Today, it's pretty much the same. The climate isn't a whole lot different today as it was then when the mammoth could roam and flourish there. How often do people find a big frozen dead mammoth? Actually quite common. And in fact, while there are scientific expeditions to look for them, the bigger issue is that local people go hunting for them. They want to find the mammoth tusks and they can sell them. So that's a bit of a problem for the scientists. But in this case, they did report the find quickly and the scientists came and excavated it. But in some areas, apparently, where the mammoth mummy was found, they find these mummies almost every few years in some of these villages. 
especially up in the Yana River area, which is to the west of this site. What's unusual about this mammoth find compared to all the other ones that have been found in the past couple of decades? Well, this is a really well-preserved young male mammoth. He was about 15 years old when he died, and he was so well-preserved that there's a lot of tissue. So it's really a mummy with soft tissue and bones, including his fatty hump around his neck area and his penis. And it was excavated in a block of ice, and then they flew it by cargo plane to a lab in St. Petersburg where the Russian scientists studied it. And then what really made this a super important find were two things. One, it had a lot of injuries that show it had been battered and shot with projectile points by humans. So it had really been battered and butchered. It showed definite signs of human killing. And then the second part that was really exciting was that when they used radiocarbon dating on the bones and some of the associated material with it, it dated to about 45,000 years of age. So this was at least 10,000 years older than the earliest presence of humans in the Arctic Circle before. So that pushes back what we know about, you know, the population of this part of the world a really long time ago. Why hasn't something like this been found before, you know, evidence of humans this far north this early? I think people did not expect it and didn't look for it. Because until about a decade ago, until 2004, people thought the earliest humans in the Arctic were there only 15,000 years ago. They didn't think humans had been there earlier, partly because in those days we didn't think people reached the Americas and had crossed the Bering Straits, right, the Arctic Bering Straits, until 12,500 years ago or so. But now that we know people were in the Americas earlier, the possibility has opened up that they were also in Siberia and the Arctic earlier. And in 2004, a number of new sites were found in the Ural Mountains of northern Europe, you know, far, far north Europe, and then also in Russia, that put human artifacts, stone tools, carved bone, butchered carcasses in the Arctic about 35,000 years ago. So we've been pushing that date back, so I think people are looking more carefully. And also, we may have a little bit of effect with some of the climate change happening that more of these mammoths are eroding out. One of the ideas proposed in this paper is that the presence of mammoths and the kind of a peak in mammoth population might have attracted humans to this spot. Is is that right? Absolutely, that's right. So if you think about human migrations, people are going to go where the food is, right? And so if you're a hunter that can take down a large mammal, this was going to be an incredible spot to go for your hunting grounds for summer because this was a huge, fast steppe region full of mammoths and large woolly rhinoceroses and reindeer and elk. Talk about perfect hunting grounds. This was it. So if humans could figure out how to live in the cold up north, they were lucky and would have a great source, a great packet of meat to get when they needed it. Speaking of which, if this mammoth was killed by hunters, why was there so much meat left? Well, it looks like from injuries to its jaw that they took the tongue and they may also have taken some other parts, but it was probably too big for them to get as much meat as it provided. So they probably just took what they could eat then, the delicacies like the tongue, and then what they could carry with them. It's like a roadside snack. You got it. (laughs) Fast food. (laughs) I think what's really interesting as well is that this region was like a vast open tundra steppe, you know, where there were lots of grasses and willows, and that this mammoth was alive at a time when the mammoths were flourishing. It was the heyday of mammoths before they started to dwindle. And so it's kind of cool to think that humans could get up there and... If humans are able to live in the far north at that time, it suggests that they already had the technology, the hunting technology, to survive in cold temperatures and to build temporary shelters, and they had clothes to do it. So this means if they got there and could live up there, they could go anywhere on the planet. Maybe not seafaring, but they could go to any terrain, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and it sounds like people should keep looking for more. 
Absolutely. I think they will. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Ann Gibbons is a contributing correspondent for science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.